Thank you for listening to the Passion Church Podcast. Our mission is to help you win by living a genuine Jesus-filled life. If you are ever in Cameron, Missouri, come and see us and join the Passion Church family. Visit our Facebook page or our website at passionchurchmo.com to find out more about us. We started two weeks ago with a, a message called 12 Shades of Gray, where I talked about there are a few things that the Word leaves a little bit of a gray area on. And oftentimes in our zeal for serving God, we sometimes can turn things into gospel that are not necessarily gospel or make something a law that is not necessarily a law and we expect other people to live up to our expectation or the parameter that we've set on our own life. And let me just give you an example of that. Some, like in my case, I don't like to listen to a lot of secular music because it chips away. Once in a while, I'll listen to secular music, but then there's other people who can listen to secular music, and they seem to be okay with that, and they don't have a problem. And, it, and I don't have the right to say they're not godly. Come on now, let's just be honest. I don't have the right to say they're not godly because they don't always do things the way I think it should be done, or that their convictions are different than mine. Now, we cannot compromise the law of God, the true law of God, the moral law of God, or the laws of sin. If it's a sin, it's a sin, and we cannot change that. But there's a lot of gray areas, and I know I've thrown this out two or three times, uh, and I'm going to throw it out again. But the Bible, there are a few things the Bible doesn't give us an absolute on, such as gambling. There's not an absolute on that. Now, I can go and look around Las Vegas, and I can find all kinds of darkness around gambling. So in my heart and mind, I leave it alone, Okay. But there's a lot of people who like scratchers and they like all this stuff. I also know that that's a behavior that can become addictive. So that is my, my warning for me to stay away from that, all right? But the Bible is actually silent on that subject. In fact, when we see uh, some of the, um, uh, the, the priests and the, the Levitical priesthood of the old, they actually cast lots, and sometimes the prophets would cast lots, waiting for God's answer on something. So in that place, in that particular thing, you can't stand behind the pulpit and say, you can't do that. But I also tell people to you go in with great discernment before you make something a part of your life because you don't want to do something that will cause you to stray away from God and into sin. Who could say amen to that? So we started with the 12 shades of gray, trying to teach us as the body, building a community in this place, that when people come in, they're not always going to be at the level that we are. And so they're going to come in with with other habits, other thoughts, other schemes, other things that differ from us. And some of those things will fall off of their lives, but some of their convictions may never be quite the same as your conviction. And we're not given the right to put somebody into bondage because we have a personal conviction. So in that first message, I tried to get it across that, that we need to be careful not to become overbearing or legalistic when it comes to other people's lives. We're here to love them to look like Christ. Amen? How many knows love will go a whole lot farther than condemnation? All right. And so then we talked last week about the law of 
life or the spirit of life versus the law of sin and death. And so we went deeper into the actual law of God and the heart intention of the Father. So I'm going to pass and review just quickly, as quick as I can. I'm going to try to keep this as short as we can today. Everybody look at your watch. we got about 40 minutes. How many knows Pastor can give an introduction that's 40 minutes long? <laughs> so uh, if you packed a lunch today, we're good. If you didn't, i got to hurry. How many packed a lunch? <laughs> well, we got some folks that are smart in this house. <laughs> If you're at home streaming, just grab a bag of Cheetos. It'll be good. All right. All right. So last week, uh, we talked about a few things. One of the things we talked about is society without, society uh, is, is without the law, and without the law, they have lawlessness. So society sees the world as anything goes. Society without God sees the world as anything goes. In fact, they have mantras like, have it your way. <laughs> I love that at Burger King. Mm, have it your way. Have it your way. Anyway, have it your way. Or love the one you're with. I remember that in the 60s. We even had songs about that. Just free love, sex, drug, rock and roll, do your thing. That's, that was society. As long as you're not hurting someone else, just do it. Come on. How many have ever heard that? Just because, uh, you know, if you're not hurting anyone, then how can it be wrong? Or, or we get mantras like, every man for himself. So society without law or the moral parameters will destroy itself and make sinful practice the sacrifice of worship on the altar of self. Did, did you get that? So society without law or moral parameters will destroy itself and make sinful practice the sacrifice of worship on the altar of self. Also, I didn't even read my scripture yet, did I? I just jumped right in. Uh, let's, let's take a look at that. Romans, the eighth chapter. First verse, first through the third verse. I'm reading out of the uh, New King James. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. This will give us a better context of what I'm talking about. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, on the account of sin. He condemns sin in the flesh that the, that the righteousness requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So we started with the 12 shades of gray. We figured out that society, without any law or moral parameter, will literally just will literally just turn everything into such a state that it will eventually kill itself off. Oftentimes, especially now on this side, when we preach from the Word and we look back to the legalisms of yesterday, 
when we say the word religion, we get the wrong connotation in our head. Because the word religion itself is not, black, is not a bad word. The word religion is the belief in and the worship of a superhuman controlling power, especially a personal God or gods. It is a system of worship and faith. So religion is not a bad word, but oftentimes we've turned it into a bad word because we associate it with the legalisms that someone else has placed upon it. So religion's not a bad word, but it is the belief and worship of God. But the misrepresentation of religion, such as legalism or the rigidity of the law, can bring about personal and corporate bondage. Who could say amen to that? In the time of Christ, the religious order of Israel was misrepresenting the heart and the intent of Father God. Now, we know that society is lawlessness and no rules apply. And legalism is religion of bondage, not free will. Legalism is religion that is burdensome, arduous, dictatorial, and even tyrannical at times. In the times of Christ, it was overbearing, difficult, and abusive, and could end in a death sentence. Many times, those uh, in the religious crowd wanted to kill Jesus for doing good. He was doing what the Word said do, but it showed up all of their rules and regulations the 643 laws that are on the books, not to mention the traditions of the scribes and the Pharisees or the traditions of man. So it was, to say the least, overbearing, difficult, hard, arduous. And it wasn't the heart of God. It was the heart of man. It was man trying to be good enough to please God. God never asked man to be good enough to please him. He just set up for us moral parameters that we could build a society that worshiped God. But because man always wants to be somebody, because the original sin in the garden was when the serpent came to Eve and said, oh, has God said that if you don't eat of that, you you know why God told you that? It's because you're not enough. You're not enough. And if you'll eat from this tree, you'll be more like God. And so man has gone on buying that lie. And so we want to take the law of God and make ourselves somebody in the law so we are pleasing to God. And so we build all kinds of hierarchies. Yes, there's order and structure to the kingdom of God. And God expects us to to work within the established order and structure and authority of the kingdom. The problem is when man gets his ideas mixed into it, instead of following the, 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 the instruction and command of God, We turn it into something that it is not. Is everybody with me so far? And so I want to finish up this thought today, if I could. I took you last week into John, so you can turn here if you want to, into John, the eighth chapter. Because if you remember, I read it out of Luke, and it blowed everybody's mind because it wasn't the same thing. Today we'll get it right. Chapter 8. <clears throat> I 
I want to share a story with you that shows you the spirit of life canceling the debt of the spirit of law and death, of sin and death. Are you ready? Are you ready? All right. Here we go. Chapter 8, verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him. Now see, where was he at? They always depict this, that he's in the sand. Where's he at? He's in the temple. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst... In other words, they brought her right in front, right into church, right in front of everybody, to the authority. They said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commands us that we should, that, that commands us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. Mm -hmm. I'm going to have fun with this. Verse 7. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and he said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and what? So he did bring up the sin issue, right? He didn't leave her in a sinful state or in a sinful condition. He did deal with the condition. He didn't say go on out and, and continue what you've always done. He says, no, no, let this be a lesson to you. That, that your sin will bring you to a state of death to the point of, of leaving this life because of what you have done. So let this be known to you that sin brings about death, so go and sin no more. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. <laughs> so Jesus is now showing us the power of the law of the spirit of life. As I pointed out last week, this was a trap set up to get Jesus to condemn this woman unlawfully. Because, and all the ladies clapped last week, adultery involves more than one person. But the trap was to bring this woman in before Jesus, and they only had half of the equation and half of the story about her sin. 
Now, the law required, (laughs) I'm probably getting ahead of my notes, but I'm going to say it anyway. The law required that you bring both parties if the accusation of adultery has been brought up. They both have to be brought to the authority of the church, and there they will stand in judgment. Now, there's more to it. I'll get to it here in just a moment. Mm. So they were trying to set him up to get him into trouble, but adultery involves two people. Last week, the ladies were all clapping and shouting and whistling and everything. Now, society would have set her free on the basis that her sin didn't hurt anyone else. Is this all right? But, of course, we know that notion's completely wrong because Adam's sin, the original sin in the garden, has affected the whole of mankind worldwide throughout the successive ages and into 2018. Children, those innocent, sweet little babies, when they're born that we can't help but love and kiss and mm, they're so sweet, turn two. And then we find out there's a seed of rebellion in my child. (laughs) You see, the sin of Adam is still enslaving the souls of men, women, and children to this very day. This woman's sin affected her husband. It affected her children, her in-laws, her neighbors, her neighborhood, people around her. Anyone she came in contact with was affected by her sin. And I just want you to understand, living a life of sinful practice, especially under the guise and the name and the association with the name of Jesus Christ, affects everybody around you. Is that too hard? Hmm. Sin is disobedience to the command of God, and it carries a cost and an effect. When I do something wrong, there's a cost to that. It will cost me, and it could cost people around me. My children could greatly suffer from the choices I make in sinful practice. There are some people here whose stories are heartbreaking, that they could share with you that their parents did some unseemly things that spun their life into an out-of-control situation. Many kids are raised with their parents in jail, in prison. They don't have any structure. They grow up without the love of a father or a mother. They grow up being shoved from place to place. They grow up in a grandmother's house who's past the age of of patience with their little ones. Come on, let's be honest. Oftentimes it's really, really unfair that grandparents are raising their grandchildren when they should be grandma and grandpa. They're having to be mom and daddy. And our society has strayed to the place where our sin is affecting uh, our families and our families are in trouble and our nation is in trouble because now every small interest group that wants to have the right to sin is screaming to the top of their lungs, let us do what we want to do. But the word says that there is a cost and an effect to our sinful 
lifestyle. Sin brings death. Who could say amen? Amen. So if you choose a lifestyle of sin, you may affect everyone that you come in contact with. And I'm going to go a little bit further. This might make you uncomfortable. If you squirm, I'm so, no, no, I'm not. I'm not sorry a bit. I'm just going to say it honest and plain. Sexual sin is judged even harsher in the commands of God because you're involving someone else in your sin. This woman is being accused because she's not only sinned herself, she sinned with somebody else. Is this okay? Doesn't matter. I'm going to preach it anyway. If you're a Christian and commit sexual sin, you have now entered the temple of the Holy Spirit and committed sin at the altar of the God of your life. Woo! This house, I can hear crickets. In fact, I think I heard a cricket open the back door just a minute ago. If you are a Christian and commit sexual sin, you have now entered the temple of the Holy Spirit. Know ye not, ye are the temple of the Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit. You have committed sin now on the altar of God. This is why Jesus says, go and sin. Oh, I'm going to mess you up. I'm going to mess you up. Plus, if you are involved in sexual sin, You have entered into another person's temple of the Holy Spirit and committed sin on that altar as well. So there seems to be no doubt that this woman was caught by law deserving punishment. She was caught in the very act according to the accusers. Now standing condemned in her heart, condemned in her actions, and condemned by men. The only condemnation left was the condemnation of God and the just punishment for her actions. Now, in the last few moments of her public humiliation and judgment from God, she encounters the judgment seat of Christ himself. What verdict will he render? She fears it will be death. Can you imagine standing in this moment? The rumors are this man is the Messiah. And you've now been drugged before the Messiah. And you're standing there. Seemingly she's guilty. At least the accusers say she's guilty. And she's fearing the punishment that will come because, ladies, you won't get your mind around this, but I'm going to throw this out. We're talking about ancient culture. Only men could give before the judge a plea to their case. She stood condemned if the men said she did this. So in her mind, she's probably praying, oh, God, 
forgive me. Not able to speak to the judge. Not able to speak out, this is wrong. I didn't do this. But in her heart, crying out, oh God, why, why did I let that moment of sin get me into this position? Why just that one moment of passion got me here? I want you to know that any time that moment of passion and temptation drags you away from what you know to be the truth of God, it places you right where this woman is. You're now guilty standing at the judgment seat of Christ, and there you stand in all of your undoneness. You're standing there with all eyes upon you and the master staring into your life. Can you imagine how she must have felt? (laughs) But I love this in the story. They come, they bring her to the temple, and Jesus is there. And they start saying, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The very act. And the law of Moses, if you're going to uphold the law of Moses, man of God, the law of Moses says she should be stoned to death. I love what Jesus does. The, each one of them, now you got to get the picture in your mind. Each one of them is bringing this accusation against her. When one shuts up, another one starts. You know what Jesus does? You saw it there. He just bends down to the floor and he starts writing. The first thing I want you to see, and if I was going to title this message, it would be, what did he write? I know. (laughs) Would you like to know? Be here next week, because next week I'm going to... I'm messing with you. I know what he wrote. But the first thing I want you to see is they started accusing her, accusing her, accusing her, accusing her, accusing her. And he acted like he wasn't interested in the least. He is God. He is the Word incarnate. He is the law. Nobody knew the law better than him. And they're tempting him. They're tempting the law. And they bring her in. And the moment they start, he's like. So he just gets down and he starts. As if he's not even hearing a word they say. Here's what I want you to see. You don't have to turn there, but write this down. Revelations 12, 10. We look at the book of Revelation all wrong. When we read the book of Revelation, our motivation is to see, how does this end? How does this end? How does this end? But the book of Revelation was written to reveal to you who he is. The book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's why you see him being born of a virgin. That's why you see a dragon waiting to eat the child. That's why you see all the wild and crazy imagery. It's revealing who he is. And in Revelation, the 12th chapter, the 10th verse, it says, Then I heard, John writes, a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For 
for the accuser of the brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. <laughs> oh, you don't even know. It started with this woman. He starts hearing an old familiar voice that started with the first man, Adam. And every man, woman, boy, and girl, whoever drew a breath, sinned somewhere along the line. And guess who showed up at the throne of the Father to make accusation against them? And Jesus kneels to the floor going, blah, 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 blah. Whatever. I've heard this sad song a million times, devil. And in this moment, he's casting down accusation. Woo, I'm having fun. That scripture goes on to say they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. Satan has been accusing mankind of sin to the Father since the fall of Adam. But Jesus is disinterested in the voice of the accuser because he knows who initiated the temptation to sin in the first place. This little woman is standing in front of the power of Christ, the salvation of all mankind, the overthrower of the accuser, of the brethren. They brought her there to die. The accuser had her drugged there that Jesus will mess up and I'll have him. And Jesus just went blah, blah, blah. Blah, 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 blah. Heard it all before. Heard it all before. And this little woman could not have been in a better place than she was that day. Because if they'd have drugged her to the high priest, it would have ended in death. But they drug her to the high priest who understands the feelings of our infirmities, who's walked this world and knows what temptation is about, yet lived above it and stayed above sin so that he in a righteous position could give a righteous judgment into her life, not one that is corrupted by the hand of man. Whew, I'm having fun. Is this, is this too hard for anybody? Does anybody need a cold rag to lay on your head? Ooh. So, she couldn't have been in a better place. As I said, the Pharisees would have wanted to stone her. But Jesus just wants to shut the mouth of the accuser. So as the legalistic crowd tempts the Savior with accusation, he curiously writes on the floor of the temple. <laughs> now, there are many theories about what he wrote And many theologians have thrown out all kinds of ideas. And some of them are reasonable and some of them are not reasonable at all. Some of them are, are well, he wrote while he could collect his thoughts so he wouldn't be tripped up. Wait a minute. This is the mind that passes all minds. <laughs> he knew what to say. 
He didn't have any problem, and he didn't need any time. There's even one out there that says, well, he was writing in Sanskrit. Oh, he was inventing a font. <laughs> Come on. Come on. It's in the Word. Write this down. It's found in Jeremiah 17 and 13. And I'm going to read it here in just a moment. But, but for, for the moment, just stay with me. Then we'll go over and take a look at it. He's fulfilling a prophecy. But the first thing you need to understand is that when someone is accused of adultery, there is a protocol in the temple for how it's handled. And although her accusers say she was caught in adultery, they violated the law in a couple of directions. You want to know how? Number one, you can't just bring one party. You must bring both parties involved. I guess they thought that they would trip him up with that, just catch him up in the zeal of someone's a sinner and they need to be stoned. So the number one thing was their violation of the oral law of God. The second, the priest is required to stoop down and to write the law that had been broken in the dust of the floor. So the first thing Jesus writes is he writes the law given in Moses against adultery and its penalty. He writes it down. He's required to by the law. He writes it on the floor. And why did they write it on the floor of the temple? Why wasn't it written on parchment? Oh, I don't know if you can handle this. Because after judgment has been given, he not only wrote down the law, he wrote down the names of the guilty parties. So he wrote down the law, and then he wrote down her name, but there was only one name. And he left it plain for them to see. He wanted the accusers to see the law is not fulfilled But the reason they wrote it on the floor and not on parchment, it was never to enter permanent record so that that individual's name could be blotted out of the kingdom. Oh, my. Oh, my. Can I do that again? Oh, my. By writing only the woman's name, he showed them they were breaking the law. Number three, he not only was required to kneel down there and to write the law, that law could not be ratified and a judgment could not be given unless there were two witnesses outside of the accusers. The accusers didn't count. There had to be witnesses, verifiable witnesses, people intimately associated with her life who say, yes, we witnessed this. Yes, we witnessed this. So they didn't provide the other party in the sin, and they didn't provide the witnesses. They think Jesus is going to bypass the protocol. Little did they know who wrote the law in the first place. 
So he just scratches on the ground. He rises up, looks the little lady in the face, who is probably now trembling in fear, knowing that judgment is about to be brought. And Jesus stands there looking at all the accusers. <laughs> and the only people there were the accusers. Now there's, an, a, there's a tradition on the Day of Atonement or the, the Feast of Yom Kippur that the high priest would enact a ritual that pointed forward to the Messiah. They did it every year. A man would start hearing this declaration that has been spoken by the priest every year at Yom Kippur at the age of 12. By the time he was 50, he would have heard this declaration 39 times in his life. 39 times. Hmm. The tradition was is that the high priest would go into the baths, the, the ritual baths of baptism, 11 times on the day of atonement. Is this okay? Each one was a, uh, what do I want to say, a testament to the washing away of sin. In this case, the baptizer was being baptized. How many remember when that happened? When the one who baptizes with fire and the Holy Ghost was baptized by John in the Jordan. Mm -hmm. And this is a ritual that happened every year at Yom Kippur, and the high priest would stand in, and it pointed to the YHVH. The Messiah, not Yahweh, the YHVH, the Mashiach, the one who's coming to redeem Israel from her sin, the one who's coming to set the world free. And as an act, an outward act, oh my goodness, as an outward act, he did one more thing that was very significant to this story, and I've got to hurry. If you have Jeremiah 17, look with me at verse 13, because Jeremiah is giving the declaration. There's a lot more to it, but he's given the declaration of what is said by the high priest that will happen when the Messiah comes, verse 13. O Lord, the hope of Israel, he's speaking of the Mashiach. All who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. He wrote... By law, her sin, her name, and then stood up as a testimony for the accusers to see the law that you've brought me has not been fulfilled. And the word says that their heart, 
began to work on them. He never said anything to them. He let their own conscience speak to them. But while their conscience was speaking to them, it says he knelt a second time and wrote upon the floor. And what he wrote was the name of every accuser who was standing against her on that day. He wrote their names on the floor because he already foreknew that when he arose from this place, they would abandon the truth, the understanding. They had foreknowledge, and all of the church of the day, the high priest down, understood that Jesus fit the criteria of the Mashiach, the Messiah, but the whole religious system was rejecting him because they didn't want to give up their self serving religion. They wanted to hold on to the power. They wanted to hold on to it. And Jesus was writing their names because he knew when he stands up they'll be gone and he can blot their name from the kingdom. Mm. You see, this was a sign of high treason or disloyalty. This prophetic statement was fulfilled on this day. So Jesus wrote twice in the dirt. First her name and the name, names of her accusers. You see, Jesus isn't interested in your accusations against somebody else. Church, I'm trying to put us on the right path for revival. You hear me? Jesus doesn't care what you say about somebody else. He and he alone stands judge. And I don't want my name blotted. I want my heart right so that I can participate in the kingdom. So that I can participate in the reaching of someone else's soul. God, Jesus, is not interested in accusations against someone else. Well, get this. He, he, when he wrote their names down, he wrote down their sin. You know what their sin was? Treason. You who hold to the law and make the law the number one thing, and you trumpet the law, and all you can talk about is the law, la, 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 la. Sound like a Christmas song. All you can do is trumpet the law. You, and how many times did Jesus get on them about being a brood of vipers, whitewashed sepulchers, because you say one thing and do another. You hold everybody underneath you to bondage, and you put out an arm's length to anyone who doesn't do it the way you think it should be done. And there's 643 laws pointing at you saying you can't even uphold it, but you're going to come to me with an accusation for, against somebody else. And so he wrote... When he wrote their names, he wrote their sin. Their sin was treason. They are going to leave the kingdom. They are going to bypass their moment of realization that the Messiah has come. So Jesus is not only not interested in accusation against someone else, he keeps track of the sin of the accuser. I'm not talking about doing away with grace here. Don't get some 
thing in your mind. I'm talking about the fact that if you're going to accuse somebody else, you just opened yourself up to be judged about the sins in your own life. Doesn't mean Jesus won't forgive. Those men could have fell in repentance that day. Is this too too hard? Here's the other thing I want you to see. He stoops to the level of the accused and brings restoration because he has taken, taken the accuser of the brethren out of the way. God's heart is restoration and reconciliation, never condemnation. Society says do it, it feels good. Legalism says do it and we'll kill you. Jesus says, do it, and I will restore you. But he also instructs, go and sin no more. I'm almost done. Can you hang with me for another couple minutes? You see, legalism binds sin to you. When they brought that woman, they had already bound her sin to her. She's bound by the law. She must die by the law. No grace. But Jesus came to show us the face of the Father, the true intent. The law was given for the order and structure of church and society. But man turned it into something that had no grace in it whatsoever. It was letter of the law or die. (laughs) Legalism binds sin to you. But the law of the spirit of life looses sin from you to live above sinful practice. Are you hearing me? In other words, if you're going to live by a legalistic law, and this is the only way it can happen, and we do this with everything in the Word, just name a subject, and we've done it with the subject. We can take good godly subjects and make them so burdensome and so hard and so complicated that people spend years trying to unlock one one portion of the gospel. What Jesus is saying here, and what we're understanding is that we are now free from sin to not have to sin anymore. The Word also provides that if we do slip up, intentional sin is a whole other subject. I don't have time today for that. But if we should slip into a sin because a temptation became too strong and we didn't have the, the spiritual or mental fortitude at that moment to overcome, or we just chose not to overcome, God's grace is still there because we have a high priest who understands the feelings of our infirmities and he's ready to plead our case before the Father. We've been loosed from sin to live above sin. I don't have to practice sin. Wherever the church came up with the mantra that, well, we're going to sin daily and we've got to sin, and as we sin, God's grace abounds that much more, and because his grace abounds much more, well, we can just keep on doing what we're doing. 
That is not the word. The counsel of the word is I rise above sin because I'm now living in the grace that has set me free and the doorway out of my sinful practice is the grace of Jesus and now I can come to the throne of God Almighty himself and boldly proclaim I've been set free, ask for what it is that I need in my daily walk with him and I have a partner called the the, uh, paraclete, the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKadosh who helps me get this life lived out right and I don't have to live in habitual sin ever again. I have been set free because whom the Son sets free is free. (laughs) Woo! I got to finish. Christianity is a narrow way. Everyone went, what? We just were shouting. Christianity is a narrow walk. It's a narrow path. It's a narrow path. Now watch this. It's a narrow path, but it is not a tightrope. You see, we make it too hard for people. You come in, if you're Pentecostal, your hair goes up, bobby pins go in, your dress gets lengthened, you scrape the makeup off, and we'll deal with the men later. Come on, I'm just being honest. I'm just being honest. I'm just being honest. And we turn it into that. Well, no, it's a narrow road. I don't want to get too far over here. I'm going to get off the path. I don't want to get too far over here. I'm going to get off the path. I want to stay on this. I want to stay on this clearly defined, easy to see the end of, not hard to figure out path. It's not filled with twists and turns. It's a straight and narrow path. It's called the door of grace. Mm. And somebody's going, he's not done yet. (laughs) You see, there's no room for condemnation in the body of Christ. We all have an accuser. The Bible spells him out, Satan. Sometimes people get sided with the enemy in accusation because of legalistic theologies and terms and thoughts. But it's not the heart of God. We don't need to accuse each other. We as Christians are allowed to correct one another. Are you hearing me? I don't have time to delve into all that today. But we are never to condemn one another. We can correct. We can help. We can guide. We can pray. We can lead. We can teach. We can preach. But we cannot condemn. When we see a a saint fail, our heart should be. This is the first thing that should come to our heart. Silence the accuser that I may restore the believer. Silence the accuser that I may restore the believer. Is that all right? And it's only... Five minutes after. (laughs) There is a miracle working God. If you're streaming with us today, God bless you. I hope this message brought some clarity on some issues for you. It's not about just being able to quote the word 
and quote the word in an obnoxious fashion. It's about believing the word, letting the word take root in who we are. And learning to live in the grace of Jesus Christ that has loosed me from sin that I might live above it in the law of life and liberty in Christ Jesus. We pray that today this message has touched you in a very special way. We want you to come and visit us. We're real easy to find. 1018 North Cedar right here in Cameron, Missouri. There's plenty of hotels here. We'll put you up for the night. Come. We want you to be a part of what God is doing here. For the revival has come. Today, if you're here today, I'm just going to ask this. This might help me. Maybe I'm asking for me. I don't know. But this message struck a chord in your heart. Would you raise your hand and say, yeah, I got it. I got it. I got it, Pastor. I got it. Excellent. Excellent. Now, if you're the kind of person who finds yourself, instead of walking the narrow path, you're walking a tightrope, I want you to get it in your heart and in your mind and in your spirit. That is not the intention of the Heavenly Father. The intention of the Heavenly Father is we take the moral parameters and the laws of sin and death and we put them in their proper place and we begin to live above them. Because God's ideal is that no one steals, no one lies, no one cheats. God's ideal is that we keep him first. But how many knows humanity falls far short of the ideals of God? And so Jesus made it a lot easier for us. Instead of binding the law to us that brings death, he loosed us from the law of sin and death through grace in Jesus Christ. If we'll come by faith through grace and make him the Lord of our life, then we are now free to live a life above sin and without the entanglements of sin that we may be effective to the world around us. And that's the intention of the heart of Father God, not to sit around judging one another, condemning one another, and binding sinful practice to one another, but to loose one another and restore one another and help one another, and encourage one another that we can build a strong community for Christ, both inside the walls and outside the walls. Would you stand? We're so glad you listened to this message today. Our goal is to bring hope, encouragement, and help you win, all while building God's kingdom. At Passion Church, we believe in community. If you would like to partner with us in prayer or giving, then send us a message on Facebook or through our website, passionchurchmo.com. We'd love to hear how God is impacting your life through this ministry.